Welcome back to the Matters Podcast, brought to you by Clio, the world's leading provider of cloud-based legal software. I'm Nefer McDonald, Affinity Partnerships Manager at Clio. And I'm Jack Newton, Clio's co-founder and CEO. On this season of Matters, we've talked about what the client-centered law firm looks like, how to walk in your client's shoes, and actionable ways to implement a client-first approach to law and business. And today, we're setting our sights on success. We're here to discuss how to measure the performance of your law firm. This is an integral step in the process of becoming more client-centered. If you're not measuring your efforts, it's hard to accurately take the pulse of your business, set realistic targets, and know if you're headed in the right direction or the wrong one. This is a topic Jack really breaks down well in chapter 12 of his book, The Client-Centered Law Firm. There's a line in that chapter that I want to read because I think it's the perfect place to launch us into this episode. Here it is. Having a way to measure the success of your client-centered initiatives will keep you objective about what's working and what isn't so you can build increasingly client-centered experiences without getting sidetracked. How do you know what's working and what isn't? And once you know what isn't working, how do you decide to push it to the side and try something new? Jack, these questions sound perfectly suited for someone with the chops to help our listeners get decisive, a decision scientist. Well, that's exactly what our first guest, Nika Kabiri, is. Nika is an academic who spent 20 plus years studying how people make decisions in a variety of contexts. Through her company, Kabiri Consulting, she works with businesses of all sizes across all industry categories, helping them drive strategic growth. What, what are some of the effects that you think the, a more client-centered law firm, a more client-centered legal industry might have? And how might you think about measuring some of those impacts? It's really hard to measure the success of a decision by its outcome because so many things are out of our control. I mean, COVID is a great example. Like so many businesses had all their ducks in a row, did everything right, and COVID came along and out of their control, right? So it's really hard to 100% say that um, any metric can purely measure the quality of a decision. It can, quali- it can measure a performance, but not the quality of your decision. The best thing you can do is make rational decisions as you're making them and try to avoid bias, try to avoid, for instance, institutional pressures to do things the old way or what have you. But with that said, you can maximize your or optimize your likelihood of being consumer centric if you go out there and talk to consumers, (laughs) just talk to consumers and ask them how you're doing. Like if you are consumer centric, if you're an attorney that never has, you know, a, a sunset interview or an exit interview with your with your clients who doesn't sit down with them and say, hey, thanks for hiring me. Where did I go wrong? How did I do it right? How can I do it better? And, and keeping that relationship going, you're not only missing out on opportunity to build referral base, but you're also not getting the right information you need to improve your practice. Some lawyers that we work with that I can think of um, do surveys. They send surveys out to their their customers, just like you know Expedia would or um, airlines do. How did I do? Would you recommend me? Are you going to recommend me? You can't assume that just because a client is smiling at you in your office or on Zoom that they're happy with you. People vote without you knowing. They vote by leaving. They vote by deciding not to refer. They leave reviews you might not know about. 
Um, don't assume that what is in front of you, and this is a number one principle um, behind making the right decision. Don't assume that the information you have in front of you is all the information there is to have. Go out and get it. Talk to the people who you really want to serve and ask them if you're serving them. And that's how you really know. And, and this is interestingly something that's actually deeply uncomfortable for most lawyers to do. Would you agree with that? Yes. And it's, I think what's really fascinating is why that is, why that is. And the why that I usually hear is, but I already know. I think what's underneath that is I don't really want to know. <laughs> right. Um, but you don't know, and you do want to know. It, you do it's, want to know. It, it's funny you mention that because, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about even the importance of something as basic as a net promoter score survey yeah. at the end of your engagement. And, uh, you know, what I'm surprised by, not so much, you know, when I, when I ask in a room, when I'm giving a talk, you know, to say a couple hundred lawyers, how few hands go up around, you know, do you do a, a net promoters survey at the end of your, your engagement? But what's surprising is when you dig into it, the, the the level of discomfort that exists around around asking that. And and maybe the, as you said, maybe the misplaced presumption that, of course, they're happy. I, I did a good job. I have to have done a good job because right. that's that's what I'm built to do. I only do a good job, you know, and and, right. <laughs> and that vulnerability maybe is the word, you know, I'm looking yeah. for the vulnerability that asking those questions uh, requires. So, so maybe, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll segue into, you know, my, my next question here, which is what kinds of key performance indicators or metrics, or maybe more broadly, even best practices in terms of gathering feedback and, and getting the inputs you need to see if you've made good decisions around how you're delivering your client service. Can you, can you talk about what you recommend on that front? Yeah. So for the legal profession specifically, I think an NPS or a net promoter score survey is a really great metric because lawyers get a lot of their business through word of mouth referrals. And the net promoter score specifically asks, would you refer basically? So it's a very direct question to directly measure the thing you really care about. Um, and not only that, but there's research on the net promoter score that shows a strong correlation between likelihood to recommend and just, you know, overall satisfaction. And also the likelihood to actually use again. So if they needed a lawyer again, they would come back to you. So there's, it's really kind of a strong metric in that way. Asking people or asking your customers satisfaction, like, were you satisfied with my services? That's not as strong of a metric because sometimes satisfaction doesn't really rise to the occasion of referral and that's really what you want. Um, but that NPS score does tell, tell a lot, I think, for, for legal professionals. So even if it's just one question, you send it out to your customers at the end of your, you know, you're serving them. Actually, two questions. One is, how likely would you be to recommend my services to a friend or a colleague? And the scale should be from zero to 10, not from one to 10, but zero to 10. And the follow-up question would be, why did you answer that? And that why did you answer that is really, really the juicy stuff, because that's where you know what to change. And I think when you look at those responses and you analyze those results, I think it's really important to realize that they are not judging you on your knowledge of the law. They don't know the law well enough to judge you on that. You are judging yourself 
on your performance in understanding the law and navigating the legal stuff. So how they're measuring you is not at all going to be aligned with how you're measuring yourself. It's just probably just set yourself up for that. They're looking for cues like responsiveness, um, politeness, thoroughness in your answers, um, clarity on what is expected from them. That's all they have to go on. That's all they know as far as what to, how to evaluate how, how good of a lawyer you are. So if you are falling short on those, it might not be that you don't understand the law or aren't good at lawyering. It just means that you aren't doing the things that you need to do to make yourself referable to a client. And there's no shame in that because you're not alone. Like doctors suck at that. Lawyers aren't that great at that. Accountants are not that great at that. Um, I've, I've been through more than one accountant for that reason, because of the responsiveness and the lack of clarity. I mean, it's just all over the place. So remove yourself and your, your sense of value from that. Um, know that it still doesn't make you a bad lawyer. You're just not giving them what they want and give it to them. Because if you really want to grow your business, that's the only way to do it is to give your potential customers what they want. And, and Nika, if we, we, we've talked a lot about the maybe negative impacts of the status quo today in a mostly call it lawyer centered world. If we succeed at driving a more client centered way of lowering a more client centered way of delivering legal services, what, what do you think some of the impacts will be on the success case or in the success case here where, where we do actually succeed at becoming more client centered? Well, first of all, what clients need will dictate the services they get. So more people who need help will get help. It'll be more fair because the lawyer will go where the client needs them to be as opposed to the other way around. So people who otherwise wouldn't have had good representation or any representation will get it. Um, I mean, it's there's just no way to see a less just outcome than that. It's putting the power of voice in the hands of the consumer. And that's that's kind of a beautiful thing. I, I, I think to a point you made earlier too, Nika, like this is looking at, at legal as a, a, a business. There's no business that thrives without delivering what consumers want. I mean, that's kind of the, the heart of what business is all about. That's the point. And that's, that's where lawyers see themselves as legal professionals as opposed to businesses and where that mindset shift might need to happen too, because you are, you are a lawyer, but you're in a business, you're running a business as a lawyer. And if you aren't paying attention to basic business practices, you're right, Jack. I mean, like if nobody's buying your stuff, then what's the point? Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of this pro the product market fit question all over again. Right. 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 So if you don't care, you're just basically, if you don't care about what people who are spending money on lawyers think about or what they want, then you're basically saying you don't care about making money. Nika is so on point here. If you ask your clients, they'll tell you how you're running your business, good or bad. But if you're not making decisions at your firm through a business lens, you're going to miss asking questions just like the ones Nika pitched off the top. Exactly. There's even a decision in there every firm needs to make. Are you just a lawyer or are you running a business? Once you've made that decision, you can set yourself on a clear path to success in client-centered lawyering where the voice of the customer is the most important part of the work you do. There's no point in trying to measure your success if you're not willing to go right to the source for the true answer. And I think there's more than one way to do that. Absolutely. 
And that's why we talked to three practicing lawyers for this episode to see how they're measuring success at their very different kinds of firms. One with a small team, another with about a dozen practicing lawyers, and finally a firm with multiple locations. Let's start with a smaller team. RB Legal is a firm located just outside of Minneapolis that focuses on estate law, probate, and small business, with a niche market in pet trusts and equine law. Jack spoke to founding partner Rebecca Bell about how they're taking a big business data-driven approach to measuring success at a smaller firm. And Jack, I think we should dive right into Rebecca talking about how important simple metrics like KPIs, conversion rates, and regular reviews of financials are to painting a larger picture of how her firm is performing, both for management and team members. To me, it's really important that the team members are part of the success of the firm in the sense that they're buying in on what we're doing. So everybody knows, hey, you know, we talked to so many people last week and look at how many clients we got and look at how close we're getting to, you know, filling the bucket. And this was our goal for this month. And look at how close we've gotten and look at, or how much over or how much better we need to do. And it is truly the feeling that we all rise together. So we look at what does it take every month to run a law firm? Not everyone understands those pieces. So it may look like, oh yeah, I'm just raking in the money as, as the founder. But the reality is it's going back into the firm to make the firm a better place to be able to serve more people, take care of the employees, the team members. So looking at all of the numbers, return on investment, number of clients, the conversions, how many are repeat matters? Where did our clients come from? Uh, how many, where were our referral sources? How quickly are our clients paying? How long is it taking our clients to convert? What's that transition like? All of those things are critical. And can you give us a, um, an example of, are, are there concrete key performance indicators that you look at as, as really important signals in terms of how your firm is performing and, and, and whether you feel like you've been successful in a given week or month or year? We started our year looking for seven new matters a week. We've added a team member. Now that KPI changes because it, it's a moving target. So then we've added an admin and that admin is working on some conversions for us and making, making those follow-up calls. Okay, so now the numbers changed a little bit more and we're tightening up that timeline. So nothing's static because at, at the point in our firm, we're growing. I've built it and we've built it as a team and we're at a place where the growth is happening. We're reaching the place where we can truly stretch our wings out and do what we want to do and need to do to serve the people we wanna take care of. But with that, the KPIs have to change as we grow and expand. I think it's a super important observation. You're going to have an idea of what your key performance indicators are and what they might look like ideally, you know, at the beginning of the year or 
whatever you might be doing a reforecast, but you need to continuously refine those key performance indicators based on changes you've made to the business and what impact you expect them to have. But importantly, you're making these additions like staff additions and so on, anticipating what downstream impact you expect them to have. And you'll be able to measure success at the end of that road based on based on the assumptions and based on the models you've built out around what their impact should be. And the reality is, if you have a bad month or two or you hit a rough spot, then you've got some ground to cover up or to, to recover, I should say. And you need to recover those numbers you didn't make. So now you've got some challenges. And, and why is taking stock of your firm from a data-driven perspective important? Uh, and how does that help you improve your practice? There's two things I would say about a law firm. It's a business. And that's a real challenge when you're solo or when you're small. I started out in another industry and became, became a lawyer, sort of a second career. But that's where having the reports that are available through Clio help you take stock. If you make use of those reports and the data that's in there, those are the things that you can look at. The metrics, simple metrics. You don't have to make reports complicated. Simple metrics can show the growth uh, that, you, that you want to make. Simple things like putting, we, our bills go out by the 10th of every month. And I have reminders on my calendar on the 8th and on the 9th and on the 10th. So if, if it falls on a weekend, if it falls on a time when I'm busy trying to accomplish other things, those bills need to go out. They need to be approved and reviewed. But if you don't send out the bills, it's a business. The bills have to go out for the money to come in. And your clients expect that. And they should expect that because you're a business. And when you look at the way you've approached this this problem, maybe it's a, a benefit from having a bit of an outside perspective from the, the legal industry. When you when you look at what you've implemented at your firm in terms of process, data insights, reporting, and and using that to drive your business, what would your advice be to other firms around practices that uh, they might think about adopting that maybe you don't see as 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 broad based accepted practices in the legal industry today? Just because you don't like to look at it doesn't mean you shouldn't look at it. You know, I always say I don't do my own taxes because I'm not a numbers person, but I better look at my numbers. And I don't like to look at numbers because I'm not a numbers person. I could go through somebody else's financials in a heartbeat. Not a problem. That's your business. Oh, it's my business. Now this affects maybe my ego, maybe my sense of being successful. So it's a little harder to do sometimes, but you just have to do it. I really respect that about Rebecca. And she's right. For a lot of small business owners, numbers are not comfortable. Sitting down every month and reviewing financials is not always a sexy undertaking, but it's necessary if you want to take the temperature of your business and know how well you're serving your clients and their unique needs on an ongoing basis. Well, like Rebecca said, knowing the answer to the question, what does it take every month to run a law firm, is necessary, no matter how big your law firm is. You know, I want to bring in Katie Young here. 
Katie is the managing partner at Ad Astra Law Group, based out of San Francisco. And as a mid-sized firm with a dozen lawyers, as managing partners, she takes reviewing the numbers very seriously. I would tell you more about Ad Astra itself, but I think Katie's explanation of her firm is too good to skip. So here's Katie telling me about Ad Astra Law Group. We're a bunch of fighters, not lovers. We're litigators and we function in the business litigation, real estate litigation, IP litigation, employment litigation spaces. Uh, We only fight. Uh, We mostly represent uh, cannabis businesses. We have a specialty industry focus there. We don't discriminate. We'll represent people from the non-cannabis world, which is actually how all of us uh, came to uh, grow up as lawyers. And we punch way above our weight class. We're a group of 18 total. I've got 12 lawyers. And uh, we handle some really big cases. It's been it's been a fun ride growing this firm. We started in 2014. We're a woman owned business, and we've been with Clio the whole time. And I'm curious, tell tell me about the name. How did the name Ad Astra come to be? Sure. Uh, so the three founding partners were David Need, Wendy Hilger, and Katie Young. And for purposes of Wendy Hilger's purposes, she had a previous partner who'd gone to jail. So when you Google her name, his name comes up. That's bad juju. So we couldn't include Hilger in the name. And without that, we're Need Young or Young Need LLP. And you just can't name a business that. So we came up with Ad Astra, which means to the stars. Uh, That's actually part of a larger Latin phrase, per aspera ad astra, which means through difficulties to the stars. It actually encapsulates exactly what we do for our clients. We carry them through difficult litigation situations to achieve great results. When it comes to measuring your firm's performance, what are the primary things you keep track of? And what what, what does having this information enable you to do? Sure. So I look at two main things. I look at utilization rate for my attorneys and I look at collection rate for the firm overall. Um, collection rate uh, being, I think, the most important because I focus on uh, the bottom line, the cash flow as the managing partner of the business. Like That is my job is to make sure our cash flow looks good. And uh, so watching that collections rate kind of go up and down over time lets me know, you know who, who's causing trouble in my tree. Right. I then uh, every week we run uh, AR report and we see who, you know, who are the ones that owe us the most money? How aged are these receivables? And we start making adjustments accordingly. Right. If it's a non-litigation matter, meaning we're not counsel of record, we can just pencils down, stop working. If we are counsel of record in the court, then we have to either be released as counsel by the client or we have to appeal, appeal to the court to let us out. And so when I'm tracking metrics, like as soon as these people miss one bill or they get X number of dollars behind in their bill, that lets me know that it's it's time to move the court to let us out of the, the case. Uh, the other metric that I look at is attorney utilization. I don't require a ton of billable hours from my associates. Most law firms, especially big law, they require you know, 2,000 hours, some, the, the good ones, 1,800 or 1,850. We only require 1,500 hours a year of our associates. And it breaks out to about six billable hours a day, which most lawyers know it takes at least eight or nine hours to bill six hours a day. Um, so I can constantly check up on, you know, who's, who's billing their six hours per day, who's dropping below, and compare that to what's going on with, um, the busyness level of all of our cases. That's another thing that we use Clio for is to track all of our work in progress so we can see uh, what's going on with the hottest cases and make sure we, we track those the most closely. 
So it sounds like you've got actually an extraordinarily high utilization rate relative to the benchmarks we see in the legal trends report of, you know, around 20, 25% for many law firms. It sounds like you're north of, of 60%. Um, yeah, for the associates, the, yeah. the partners, you know, if I bill two to three hours a day, great. Got it. You know, that's okay. great for the firm. Um, as the managing partner, my job is more air cover and cash flow and running the business. And then there's a couple of cases that I, you know, I watch all the cases, but there's a couple that I keep my hands on just myself. And, and so when you think about law firms more generally, you talked about how important tracking collection rate and tracking utilization rate is, is, is for your firm. What, what other metrics do you think are important for, for law firms to track at a high level? I think it's important to be tracking uh, where your referrals are coming from. And that's something that we capture in Clio as well, because um, it's it's all about business generation. Business generation drives cash flow. Utilization rate is going to go nowhere if there's not business coming in the door. Um, so we keep track of where all those referrals are coming in from, and we make sure that we uh, you know, spend time with uh, call send gifts to all these people that send us business. And, you know, it's been hard over the pandemic. I used to see these people at parties and uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And uh, so, you know, making sure that we've got our, our irons in the fire that continue to keep coming in. That's another really important metric for us. Is, you know, and then uh, of the RAs that we send out of, of the number of representation agreements that we send out, how many of them come back signed, right? That for us is about a 90% rate uh, really good. Uh, usually we don't even send the representation agreement unless it's already, you know, a done deal. Uh, but that's another thing that I look at is, you know, how often are we actually retained when, when we get phone calls in? Uh, how often do those turn into, of the ones that we want, how often do those turn into a signed client? So one, one of my f- favorite Peter Drucker quotes is what what gets measured gets managed. And when you look at the the processes you've implemented in your firm that enable you to measure some of these key performance indicators. Uh, can you talk about some of the some of the ways those have driven change in how you run your law firm or maybe how you structure certain processes in your law firm? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the number one thing is performance for our associates. Uh, we had an issue recently with an underperforming associate. We could see her utilization rate was way down even though the rest of the firm was really busy. And I could, I could tell from you know, the other metrics about how much new business is coming in and how much is being billed on these other cases every week by tracking our work in progress. Um, I could see that her lack of utilization rate, her low utilization rate was not due to lack of work. It was due to her not performing. And so it gave us a basis to put her on a performance improvement plan and eventually manage that associate out because that was an underperforming asset. Um, The other thing that we uh, look for when we look at those metrics is, you know, if we have an overperforming attorney, um, we actually have a bonus structure in place uh, and we check it quarterly. If they've met their quarterly requirements, they get a little bonus. Uh, So we, we, we keep track of that really closely to make sure that we are rewarding those people who are pulling their weight and then some more. And it helps me make decisions about how I compensate the employees as well. You know, those with high utilization rates on cases that are collecting, um, those, those people are the most value to us and are going to get the biggest raise. 
And what would you say to law firms out there that struggle when it comes to measuring what they're doing, either because they're not interested in being data-driven or they just don't know where to start? There's a lot of law firms that that want to be more data-driven, but just don't know how to capture the data and how to weave it into their, their day-to-day processes. Sure. I think it's all about developing a new habit. Um, I, When I started as a solo practitioner many, many years ago, I used a different product other than Clio, and I had to develop a habit for it. When I started at Astro Law Group in 2014, we decided to move everything from my previous system into Clio because you guys had better support for that move. What I was looking for back then was a way to have this be something that was kind of the brain center of this new law firm that we built. And we, we were born digital, um, but still it took developing the habit to put everything into Clio. Um, even to this day where we struggle with getting our own associates to use the task list that's within Clio. There's so much functionality that we don't use that we could be using. Um, and it's all, it's all about just making sure that you um, open. The first thing I do in the morning is I open Clio and I tell it what I'm doing with every six minutes of my time. And I sort of gamified it for myself. <laughs> like, how, how many things can I capture here? You know, those point ones add up and <laughs> they sure do. They sure do. Um, so, you know, it's developing the callus for having to uh, sit down and put that information in or train your staff to do so as well. It's often easier just to tell someone else what the protocol is and enforce that they're doing it. Um, And once you start to populate that data, it's kind of fun to run the reports and see, you know, what's been going on. Not that I like checking up on people, but every now and then I got to check up on what's going on, right? If I keep hearing someone saying they're so busy, they're so busy, I I go run the reports in the reporting section and I can see in real time what's been happening with my partner, my associate, my paralegal, you name it. Otherwise, if I didn't have them, if I wasn't strict about everyone inputting that data in real time, I don't think I would have as much data as I as I would need in order to make decisions that work for the firm. And it helps me make decisions that are not based on emotion or feeling like I feel like this person is overperforming. I feel like this person is underperforming. I can know as long as I've made sure that everyone's telling the system what's going on. You know, Nefra, I love what Katie said here about forming new habits. That's really a crucial part of getting success out of whatever system you've decided on to measure your success. It's work. You need to put the effort in to track the data if you have any hope of getting insights out of that data. It's like that old saying, garbage in, garbage out. But in most cases with firms, it's nothing in, nothing out when it comes to data and analytics. That's really the crux of it, isn't it, Jack? It's definitely work to build systems to measure your success, but once the habit's formed, it gets easier and easier. And then when the data input becomes second nature, you now have all the information you need right at your fingertips to help you measure success. Exactly. Now, Rebecca and Katie are both running firms with sole locations, and the need to track data only increases as your firm grows. That's why I wanted to talk to Leon Fernando Del Canto for this episode. He is the first Spanish citizen to hold a double qualification as a barrister in England and Spanish abogado. And his firm, Del Canto Chambers, is innovating in the world of international tax and legal advice. They have offices in Doha, Ibiza, Madrid, Barcelona, London, Bogota, and Cork, Ireland. 
I can already see why it would be so important to have systems in place to measure Del Canto Chamber's success with teams operating out of six different cities. Absolutely. That's why it was important to me to learn how Fernando measures the success of his firm at a macro level. I mean, main thing is is the way we are serving existing clients. So basically, we place a lot of importance in delivering in 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 appropriate periods of time. So we have we have drafted all the all the different processes. We call our services. I mean, we have thirty eight processes or services that we offer to our clients, and we have developed a very clear uh, procedures for each process, and we have timelines. We we know how many, I mean, like, like the resources we are going to be needing in terms of time. So we we place a lot of importance in delivering on time and delivering a good quality report with three-level review. The other, the other metric that we use from a financial point of view, obviously, is, is profitability and is based on time, time spent. We are not crazy with with the timesheet, I mean, in the sense that we aim to do 20 hours a week, which is quite a lot for many people, but we want 20 quality hours, which is a lot if you think about that, because there is a lot of admin and training time. And in reality, our goal is to get to a four days week, which is another innovation. It will take us a little bit to get there, but we the way we work is we try to do very good 20 hours of professional and dedicated work and try to raise the, the fees on that, you know what I mean? And try to raise also the standards and the quality. And to do that, you need to provide value. How do right. you see value according to, to client satisfaction? You know, so it's not something that you decide from a head office, you know, and determine how you are going to be charging. I mean, people need to get value from your services. So. That's, that's a little bit a summary of our strategy in terms of, of what is essential in uh, key performance indicators. And it, it sounds like, maybe just playing back what I heard you talk about, Fernando, it sounds like you're really focusing on utilization rates as one of the main areas you're trying to get more productive and, and more efficient with. Much more. You know, again, if we look at a 40-hour week, it looks like you're, you're aiming for a utilization rate of about 50%, which is more than twice what we see the average small firm able to achieve from a utilization standpoint. Cor correct. I mean, I, I was trained in Deloitte and KPNG, you know, so I am used to to the long hours type of approach. I mean, like, like spending more than 60 hours a week, I mean, wasn't abnormal. However, the, the quality of the work you deliver over time with that way of working is not, is not what our clients require. I mean, we work quite a lot in planning and council opinions, which require a lot of intellectual work. So the, the, the work we do as barristers is much more intellectual from that point of view. So you need to be working with legislation at a very high level. I mean, it's not copy and paste, and, you know, or, or just procedural work. I mean, we are working on high intensity type of work. So what I notice and what I learned from working so many hours is that, you know, it is much better to focus on less hours and having your staff developing other skills. So training for us is crucial. And everyone at every level in the firm is constantly engaged on a program of study. So there is no exception to that. And obviously, who doesn't want to do it, fine. They are not progressing at the same level that the rest of the people so that, and, and we talk about uh, proper programs of study. So 
For instance, we, we require double qualification in two jurisdictions, which takes a little bit of time. And then we require an specialization in each jurisdiction on one of the topics or, or the matters that the firm is, is, is um, selling. I mean, so like tax and intellectual property are our top two areas. So we want uh, people to have a training on one of those two areas. And can you tell us a little bit more about, it sounds like you're very metrics oriented, you're, you're tracking how some of your key performance indicators are evolving over time. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you feel like you've been able to optimize over time and what has had the largest contribution to your firm's success and enabled you to, to thrive? I think we are still, uh, how do you say, in the process. And, and, and last year hasn't been easy for anyone, you know, I mean, like not so much about war because we have got a lot of, I mean, new engagements and new clients. That's not the issue, but... Uh, the culture of the firm, the way we are working together. I mean, so so what I want to convey is that that we don't consider ourselves that we have achieved yet what we can achieve. You know, in that sense. I mean, right now, I mean, the main main key performance indicator in terms of success keeps being for me the focus on the twenty hours and those twenty hours to be really billable hours. So. Not not using write-off and not using. I mean, so so that's key. I mean, talking about about you know data and clear clear metrics. Probably that's the the best one, and that that also plays a healthy pressure on the staff, which I don't want anyone to go crazy. So basically, if if you are not achieving that or we are not still there, I mean, we continue working because at the end of the day, it's about value. I mean, sometimes you cannot build the 20 hours, I mean, many times you cannot build the 20 hours to be realistic. And we continue monitoring, reviewing, giving feedback and, and learning, you yeah? So, So I, I believe it's, an, it's a process, you know, and we are still working on it. You know, you, you've done a lot to put tracking of the appropriate data and, and inputs to, to calculate these metrics in place. Can you give some advice to firms that are looking to get better at this or maybe just make their first foray into becoming more data-driven and, and instrumenting their firm in the kind of way you need to, to to get some of these data insights? I think the first first thing for me was to have the right paradigm to implement. I mean, if you, if you are not using timesheets and you are not oriented that way, you know, which many firms are not, you know, I mean, in... In England, obviously, this is much more common than in America, but in many other countries, people don't use timesheets at all. And you need to know why you are using that. I mean, it's not a matter of control, and, and we need to be clear with that. I mean, it's a matter of productivity and success. I mean, if you don't if you don't have, uh, how you say, figures and data, people don't know where they go, and people don't know how, how they are performing. So it's a matter of, of all of us learning with that data. So the blaming culture or the controlling attitude or, or the control freak type of approach, I think is very wrong. I learned it also working for Deloitte and KPNG, you know, how, how damaging can be this approach because, I mean, those big firms operate under that paradigm. And, and I believe there is, there is a better approach to time, time sheets. I mean, I am a great believer of, of timesheets and controlling time for your own purposes. So every professional needs to understand why this is useful for yourself. I mean, you want to 
finalize your week and you want to know that you have done something productive and your clients are receiving what you are giving, you know, so this, this type of, of culture is what we are insisting again and again in our meetings when we are reviewing timesheets. And I think when you are starting to implement a system, you need to be realistic. It is very difficult to train people to, to track their time if they are not used to do that. And the stick approach is not the best one. So you need to build up little by little. So perhaps aiming for less hours on the first weeks and keep building. And, and over time, I mean, in a six-month period, you can achieve quite a lot. If you monitor weekly, you need to be monitoring weekly. And, but not, not just the management. Everyone needs to be aware of what's going on. And when, when you look at the approach you're taking to incentivizing your team to get better at tracking some of this data, which is often, it feels like incremental work that's maybe not adding value. You mentioned you don't want to use this stick as a way to motivate people. What, what are you able to offer as a, as a carrot? Is there some kind of feedback loop that is, I mean, is incentivizing to people to do this work? To be honest, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably, it has to do with the mentality of being a traditional lawyer or barrister. I mean, it, this, this profession is very independent. I mean, we are independent. We don't work in a partnership model as such. I mean, we are independent lawyers working together in chambers. So from that perspective, you are working with equals. So as long as you are clear that there is a career path and everyone commits to that, I mean, the only way to progress is somehow qualifying. I mean, it's, 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 it's like, a, I mean, we are, we are much more focused on knowledge and seniority through knowledge than, than performance. I mean, performance is fundamental, is necessary, and is something that you need to do. I mean, it's, it's basically, I mean, there is no option, there is no question. But I think when you put this in the context of a career plan, and the career plan will take three to five years, and, and if everyone understands this, I, doesn't, I, mean, I don't want to convey the idea that everyone is going to be going through this. I mean, people drop. But everyone is clear that this is the standard, you know, of the firm. And we are very young from that point of view. We are just implementing this, this way of working. So we have got our second barrister qualified one month ago. So it's, it's little by little we are getting there. Maybe a really important point you're making as well, which is this orientation around performance and being data-driven is something you're both screening for culturally and rewarding in terms of progression in the firm. So it's really in the DNA of your firm. This isn't a nice mm -hmm. to have. This is to be successful at the firm. This is something you need to be become good at is really the message to your team. Is that fair? Exactly. Yeah, I think so. And, and everyone understand it well, you know, because because we are very honest and very clear and very, how you say, horizontal in the way we talk about these things. So everyone yeah. understand that this is a, I mean, it's fundamental, you know, in the same way you pay your professional insurance liability, you, you do your work, you do your 20 hours, you do your training. I mean, this is no, I mean, there is no option. And I think this is, this, this is a clear message for everyone and everyone embrace it, you know, in a, in a positive way. I like that idea that being data-driven needs to be in the DNA of a firm and the people who are a part of the team. I think Fernando's also so good at being clear that the processes they use at Del Canto Chambers are still a work in progress. In some ways, I think you never quite master how to measure success. The approaches you take need to change over time as your firm makes changes. That's right on, Nefra. 
there's never going to be a perfect way to measure success because in many ways, success is subjective. Even if you're implementing changes perfectly or tracking data meticulously, there are so many possible variables to take into account. So instead of looking at metrics as proof points, use them to flag indicators of success or search for signals that you can make improvements to your firm. So Jack, we started this episode by speaking to a decision scientist and we ended it by interviewing three practicing lawyers from very different firms about how they measure success. What are you taking away from this episode? I think the main point for me here is that you need to build a team that is either innately data-driven or will work hard to create good habits when it comes to data input and collecting metrics. Having that data is so invaluable when you're trying to measure success, but also to make sure you're checking in with your clients about their experiences. Having the qualitative data to back up your efforts to become more client-centric is great, but it's no replacement for regularly checking in with the people you are serving. Because like Nika said at the beginning of this episode, clients aren't measuring your success by your knowledge of the law. They're interested in your responsiveness, clarity, and the thoroughness of your answers to their questions. And at the end of the day, when your clients are being served in ways that are meaningful to them, it should show through in the metrics as you make changes to your processes to become more client-centered. Thanks for those insights, Jack. Thank you, Nefra. And to our listeners, we're so glad you've joined us for this episode of Matters Season 2. This has been a presentation of Season 2 of Matters, based on the client-centered law firm, the best-selling book by Jack Newton. Matters is hosted by Jack Newton and Nefra McDonald, produced by Andrew Booth and Derek Bolin, and brought to you by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider. Be sure to subscribe to Matters wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit us at clio.com. To read Jack's book, search for The Client-Centered Law Firm wherever you buy your books.